I'm Dr. James Brooks, the Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this noontime lecture, particularly as the weather's become a little more tolerable and it's a little uh, easier for us to get out of our houses at the moment. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monica Nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain, thought, maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and its future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Before we get on to today's program, I just want to run through a couple of events that we have upcoming. Um, so this Saturday, I think um, most prominently, August 5th at 6 p.m., we're going to have Brew Ha Ha back on the front lawn. So please bring your friends for an evening of live music, food trucks, and Virginia craft beer on the museum's front lawn alongside or along Arthur Ashe Boulevard. And I'm looking forward to that myself. I'm going to be um, stepping out the library and instead of pulling manuscripts, I'm going to be pulling pints for you all that evening. So I'm looking forward to playing Pub Landlord. Um, our next lecture, which is going to be held in person here in the Robbins Forum, is going to take place on Thursday, August 17th at 6 p.m. Dr. Michael Dickinson, who works over at VCU, is going to be here to speak about his first book, Almost Dead, Slavery and Social Rebirth in the Black Urban Atlantic from 1680 to 1807. Almost Dead explores how urban areas across the Atlantic world were shaped by Black lives and experiences, and was actually recently awarded the Lovejoy Prize for the best work on the subject of slavery in 2022. So that's certainly one not to miss. If I could just ask you all just to take a moment to check your phones and make sure they're set to silent or otherwise switched off. And we'll move on to today's program. So for more than two decades, hikers on the Appalachian Trail in Virginia walked through some of the most beautiful landscapes of the Southern Appalachian Mountains. Then in 1952, the Appalachian Trail Conference moved 300 miles of the trail, more than 50 miles to the west. This change was the single largest rerouting of the AT in its long history. And in his latest book, historian and lifelong AT section hiker, Mills Kelly tells the story of a part of the history of the Appalachian Trail that is all but forgotten by hikers but not by the residents of southwestern Virginia counties that this trail used to cross. Virginia's lost Appalachian Trail is thus a history of the AT and a story of the persistence of its historical memory in rural communities once traversed by the AT. So Mills is here today to tell us this fascinating story. He graduated from the University of Virginia with a degree in history and George Washington University with a PhD also in history. He's a professor of history at George Mason University, where he is also the director of Mason's award-winning Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media. His first book, Teaching History in the Digital Age, was published in 2013, and he has authored numerous articles exploring the intersection of pedagogy and the digital humanities. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Mills Kelly. Thank you very much. Thanks everybody for being here at lunchtime on a Thursday. I really appreciate it. And it's just, it's so nice to be here to talk with you today about a subject that I've spent much of the last four years researching and thinking about and talking to people about. Um, this is like, I would really wish I could come to the next lecture because I know of uh, this this Lovejoy Prize winning book and would love to hear the author speak about it. But there are two different kinds of books. That's a book uh, really written both for the public and for academic historians with all the academic apparatus that you would expect, lots of good footnotes and deeply researched. Uh, my book is also deeply researched but contains no footnotes. <laughs> and, and the reason is that I wrote this book um, as a historian, but I also wrote it for a different audience than my professional colleagues in the Department of History where I teach. Um, I wrote it instead for people who love the mountains, they love hiking, and or they are from the communities that I'm gonna talk about today. 
And, and so I wrote it really for an entirely different audience, meaning you. So I hope you enjoy what um, I have to say. Uh, just to orient everybody, uh, we're talking about the Appalachian Trail. And, and I'll also say, I say both Appalachian and Appalachian. Um, if you are from anywhere south of the Potomac River, it's the Appalachian Trail. If you're anywhere north of the Potomac River, it's the Appalachian Trail. People north of the Potomac don't really care which way you say it. People south of the Potomac very much care. So, um, you know, and I was I was born in, in Roanoke, but moved to Northern Virginia when I was five. In Northern Virginia, people say Appalachian Trail. In Roanoke, it's the Appalachian Trail. So if I say both, you'll understand why. I always feel like I have to explain myself on this. But so just to orient us, this is the, the route of the trail today. This is from the National Park Service. And it starts at Springer Mountain in Georgia, north of Atlanta, and runs all the way up to Mount Katahdin in Maine. The part of the trail we're going to be talking about, or I'm going to be talking about today, is here in southwestern Virginia, in, in the, the area south, due south of Roanoke, um, and then eventually over to the Tennessee border. So um, you may not know this, but the Appalachian Trail began as a socialist project. Um, Benton Mackay, who was the person who dreamed it all up in 1921, was a, um, he was a socialist intellectual who worked for the U.S. Forest Service. He was a regional planner, was really interested in watershed management, and um, got his degree, his master's degree in forestry at Harvard. I did not know that Harvard had a forestry program. I don't really think of Harvard as a place that has a forestry program, but at least it did. It might still. Uh, but uh, Mackay was really, in 1921, he was very concerned about the health and well-being of working class people in the United States. And, um, you know, they worked in factories, they worked in smelly cities with lots of noise and, you know, bad air. And, and also, we'd had the First World War, and then even worse, the influenza pandemic of, of 1918 to 1920. And so things, you know, if you were impoverished or just not especially prosperous in the United States, in 1921, it was a kind of an unhealthy place to be. And Mackay, who had grown up in Western Massachusetts, he really wanted working class people to have access to the mountains, to the fresh air, to the oxygen, as he put it. He said, there's not enough oxygen in people's lives. And so this, is, this explains why the Appalachian Trail runs so close to all the big cities of the East Coast, because he wanted it to be easily accessible for working class people. The problem with that notion was that, and he was right about the value of oxygen and the value of spending time under the trees, you know, it's, it's good for you. Mackay's socialism was Harvard socialism. He, um, he didn't spend a lot of time with working class people. And, and so he, he had these ideas about working class people, but not actual practical experience with it, um, with those folks. And so uh, he didn't realize that like most workers on Saturday or Sunday, they they might still be working, or if they weren't, they wanted to like go to a baseball game or go to the pub or hang out with their kids or whatever. They didn't want to go hiking in the mountains. Plus, it was expensive to get on a bus and ride out to the mountains. So it turned out that the Appalachian Trail was more of a middle class playground rather than a um, a working class playground. And but it has turned into something that he never could have expected. And that is uh, the National Park Service will tell you that that this year, approximately 4 million people will set foot on the Appalachian Trail, making it one of the 10 most visited national parks. It's been a national park since 1968. And, um, and Mackay, was, he, he lived to be 95 years old. He died in the early 1970s. And, and he was tickled to find how popular this trail was becoming when he died. But it was in at his death, maybe a million people went to the trail, and now it's closer to four million. So it is just this incredibly successful idea. And the unique thing about the Appalachian Trail is that it's a two this year, two thousand one hundred and ninety eight point four mile long national park that spans fourteen states. On average, is less than a quarter mile wide. It's just this long, narrow strip, and um, it's managed entirely by volunteers. It was a volunteer project up until 1968. And then when the National Park Service took it over after the passage of the National Scenic Trails Act, they did something that the National Park Service had never done before, and to my knowledge has not done since. And that is that they left control over this trail, over this park to these volunteer organizations. 
and this becomes important to the story as you'll see in, in a few minutes. So just to, to help with the further orientation, the blue line on this map is the current route of the Appalachian Trail and the red line is the original route from 1930 to 1952. And you'll see that, that where the blue and the red lines intersect and the yellow line there was just sort of a proposed idea that never happened. The, um, where the blue and red lines connect is right around McAfee Knob, just west of Roanoke. And if you know, if you've seen a picture of the Appalachian Trail, you've seen a picture of McAfee Knob. It is the most photographed place on the entire trail. It's this promontory that sticks out over the Catawba Valley. It's really spectacular. But uh, you'll see that it, if you look at that red line, the trail in 1930 took a, a left turn, a sharp left turn, and went straight south across Poor Mountain and down into Floyd County, Virginia. And in, today, it swings out west of Blacksburg. And so, as, as James said when he was introducing me, that's 300 miles of trail. Um, and at the time, in 1952, when it was relocated, that represented 15% of the entire trail. So it was the Appalachian Trail changes every year in length, usually small changes these days, but 15% um, but is a lot. And, and so, so this is the, 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 the gives you a sense for the size of that change. So how did I get onto this story? Well, archives are very dangerous places for historians. <laughs> And, and the reason they're dangerous places is that they're full of rabbit holes. And, you know, like Alice in Wonderland, we see these rabbit holes open up in front of us all the time. And we and we're sort of duty bound to peer into the rabbit hole. See, is there anything interesting down in there? And I would say 95 percent of the time we back away from the rabbit hole and go on with whatever it was that we were doing. This particular my particular rabbit hole was in the Appalachian Trail conference archives, or now Conservancy archives, uh, which at the time was, those archives were in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. They've actually moved recently to George Mason. But uh, there was this letter from a guy, I was just reading through correspondence, you know, the, the way we do as historians. And there was a letter from Myron Avery to Arthur Perkins and, uh, in 1929, as the project was really nearing completion. Started in 1925, they started building the trail. They completed it finally in 1937, but in the late 20s, it was getting close to done. And Avery was a young lawyer uh, based in Washington, D.C., who worked essentially as the director of the Appalachian Trail Conference. And then Perkins was a judge in Connecticut who was funding it basically out of his back pocket. He was technically the chairman of the ATC, but Avery was doing all the work. And um, and so Avery writes this four-page, he wrote the longest letters, four-page letter to Perkins in 1929, in which he says, you know, we're almost done with the project, except for two areas, Maine, which is really difficult because Maine was very wild and, um, and going to be difficult to route the trail through, and Southern Virginia, which Avery says is our terra incognita. And I thought, why? <laughs> What's that all about? And then he mentions the possibility of routing the trail along the Floyd County, Franklin County border. Now, if you've driven the Blue Ridge Parkway south of Roanoke, you've driven that route along, and I'll come back to that route in a few minutes, but um, along that boundary. And so I mentioned I was born in Roanoke. My father worked at Ferrum College and um, in Franklin County. And so for the first five years of my life, I lived in Franklin County. And I saw the word Franklin County in this letter and the rabbit hole suddenly got bigger because I thought that Blatcher Trail doesn't go through Franklin County. and and so I kept reading and 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 um, and just trying to understand what's going on here. And and honestly, I think if I hadn't originally had this connection to Franklin County, I probably would have backed away from the rabbit hole and moved on. But instead, I jumped in, and the, this book is the result. So it helps to understand about Myron Avery that he was he was incredibly driven, and he was a stickler. And that's being polite about it. He was he was the like a stickler's stickler about things. And he believed that it was up to him, Myron Avery, to decide exactly where the Appalachian Trail ought to go. And shortly after he wrote that letter to Judge Perkins, he gets a letter from the guy at the front in the foreground of this photo. His name is Shirley Cole, and he's from Floyd County. And that's his brother Ernest with him in the background. And um, Cole 
uh, and Avery actually took this particular photograph. And Cole was the first county agent in Floyd County. The Agricultural Extension Service had just begun, and and Virginia Tech trained young farmers to take over as county agents. And and so Shirley Cole became the first county agent in in Floyd County. And he had heard about this Appalachian Trail thing, and he was a hiker, and he got so excited and enthusiastic about it. And so he and a friend of his from Mount Airy, North Carolina, uh, they went and plotted out a route for the Appalachian Trail in south of Roanoke, all the way down to the Tennessee border. And then he writes this letter to Myron Avery and says, here it is, I've solved the problem of Southern Virginia, which Avery had just recently described as terra incognita. And so uh, as Avery had what could politely be described as a freak out because Myron Avery wanted to decide where the trail was gonna go. He didn't know who the Shirley Cole guy was. He didn't want him choosing where the trail should go. And so Avery wrote to a friend of his, the guy in the cowboy hat, uh, and, and said uh, he was a uh, forester for the state of Georgia named Roy Osmer. And, um, and he said, also, I, you can't, it's maybe you can't tell, but these are two Georgia foresters. And you'll notice that they're wearing Colt 45s in their belts. And I wondered a little bit about that. I found out later because they had trouble with moonshiners. And, and so they wanted to be well armed. But um, he, uh, Osmer had scouted the route of the trail in Georgia two years earlier. And so Avery wrote to Osmer and said, Roy, I need you in Virginia now. We can't let those people, that's how he described Shirley Cole, we can't let those people decide where the trail ought to go, where our trail ought to go. And, and so I need you to get up to Virginia now and scout it for me. And Osmer said, I'm raring to go. I'll be there, I'll be there in a week or two weeks. And he said, and can you please send me your measuring wheel? Myron Avery, I said he was a stickler. He measured everything with this measuring wheel that he pushed in front of him all the time. And, and as evidence of what a stickler he was about it, one of the local trail clubs would publish a guide, say, you know, to the trail in Connecticut and say that from point A to point B is 7.8 miles. And Avery would go up to Connecticut at some point and, and he would go out with his measuring wheel and he would measure it. And he would write them this very terse memo saying, your trail guide says 7.8 miles. I measured it and it is 7.9 miles. Please correct your trail guide. You know, he was that guy. And, and so Osmer says, you know, I'll, be, I'll, I'll meet you in Lynchburg at the Peaks of Otter Lodge and we'll, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll start doing this for you. Can I have the measuring wheel? And Avery wrote back, no can't have my measuring wheel. You'll have to acquire one on your own, and uh, but I'll reimburse you. And uh, in fact, Myron Avery's measuring wheel is in the Appalachian Trail Museum in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so when he died, he actually died very young at, at the age of 52. And when he died, um, somebody, one of his children gave it to somebody who then kept it. And then when the museum opened in the 1990s, they that person donated it to the museum. So if you really want to see that Stickler's measuring wheel, it's there. But so Osmer came to, to Virginia and um, and started with a borrowed measuring wheel, and he started measuring a route for the trail, and he promptly got lost. And if you've driven that section of the Blue Ridge Parkway, you'll maybe remember that it crosses stream after stream after stream that cut through the Great Plateau of Southwest Virginia and drop off down into the Piedmont, and all those water gaps along the way, it's just up and down and up and down, and and Osmer got completely turned around. And so he did the thing he absolutely was not supposed to do. He went to the town of Floyd and he looked up that guy named Shirley Cole. And, and he said, Mr. Cole, could you show me the route that you thought of? And Cole said, I'd love to. And, and so Osmer and Cole drove around and scouted bits and pieces of trail. And then Osmer wrote this 11 page memo to Myron Avery saying, I have solved the problem of the trail in Southwest Virginia. And he details exactly where all the bits and pieces of the trail ought to go. And in the very last paragraph, and he said, he says, and Mr. Shirley Cole of Floyd County was very helpful in my research, <laughs> meaning he showed me what to do. So, uh, and then Avery being Avery, he wrote to Judge Perkins, his boss, and said, the Southern Virginia problem has, so has been solved. We've got it all worked out, you know, taking full credit. And so, so that, um, that's how the trail got, got marked out originally. This is a lot of what it looked like. I took this picture in 2019 uh, near Fancy Gap, and um, it's just a lot of the old trail, whether it was in Southwest Virginia or anywhere, it ran on old roads in the mountains. 
mostly abandoned, some still in use, because this was the easy way to get a trail put together in a hurry, was to use old abandoned roads in the mountains. And if you hike on the Appalachian Trail today, and you sort of pay attention to the sides of the trail, you'll notice that you can suddenly see that there are piles of rocks along on either side, and you realize I'm in an old roadbed that just looks like a trail. Uh, and you'll also notice in this photograph, it's pretty foggy. Um, Fancy Gap, which is where the Interstate 77 on the way down to Charlotte drops down off the Great Plateau into, uh, into North Carolina down near Mount Airy. And uh, the original name for Fancy Gap was actually Foggy Camp. And so this is one of the foggiest parts of the whole state of Virginia. But that's, that's a lot of what it looks like. Um, and the trail guides are just wonderful to read because they have all these very specific directions about how to navigate your way through the geography. Like, approach the County Line Baptist Church, this church, approach the County Line Baptist Church on your left. Turn right. Go one half of a mile, which somebody I hope measured carefully for Avery, and uh, and then then you get to the Edwardsville store. And at the Edwardsville store, turn left. I took that photo in 2021. The Edwardsville store is kind of on its last legs, I have to say. But um, but somebody loves it because they put those posts up under the porch to to hold it up. Who knows if it'll ever come back as a store? But that's how the old trail guides were written. Uh, the trail in southwestern Virginia had some of the most spectacular geography of the entire Appalachian Trail. And the one place that, that people, hikers, remarked on all the time was this particular mountain. It's called the Pinnacles of Dan. And it's in the Dan River Gorge at the headwaters of the Dan River. And I've never understood why it's the Pinnacles, plural, because there's only one pinnacle. But, but it is the Pinnacles of Dan. And the, the trail ran up one side to the summit and down the other side. And getting, if you were hiking north, it was pretty easy to get to the summit because there was a really well carved out trail uh, made by a man named John Barnard. Uh, and, but then when you, but Barnard's trail just went to the summit so people could get to the summit and look around. The, and, and then they walked back down the way they came. The Appalachian Trail went over the summit and down the other side. And hikers at the time described it as the second most difficult part of the entire trail, getting down that other side. Uh, the most difficult part being Mahusik Notch in Maine, where you have to like climb handholds, rebar handholds on a granite face. That's the hardest. Uh, but the Pinnacles of Dan was next. And um, I interviewed in 2019, I interviewed a man named Gene Espy, who at the time was 91. Gene was the second person to hike the entire AT in one season. He did that in 1951. And, um, and I asked Gene a, a lot about this section of the trail. And, and, and I said, do you remember hiking over the pinnacles? And he said, oh, I remember. And I said, what was it like? And he said, it was horrible. <laughs> and so, and I said, well, horrible how? And he said, well, I got to the top. And then he said, I think I just fell all the way down the other side. Uh, and his vision of, if you remember the kids movie, Toy Story, Buzz Lightyear said, you know, falling with style. Well, that's how you got down the pinnacles. But down in the Dan River Gorge were these beautiful waterfalls. I mean, it was really a spectacular area. Um, Hikers today, hiking along the Appalachian Trail, stay at trail shelters. And I maintain one in Northern Virginia, the Manassas Gap Shelter, built by the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s out of old chestnut logs. And um, this is the only shelter that was built along the old section of the Appalachian Trail. The Civilian Conservation Corps built it in the, in the mid-30s and when they were building the Blue Ridge Parkway. And um, this shelter is still there. It's very easy to get to if, if, if you want to visit it. Um, you just, it's in Floyd County and right near the junction with Patrick County. And there's a turnout on the Blue Ridge Parkway called the Saddle. And you just pull into that parkway and there's a beautiful view off in the direction of Richmond from there. And um, just really spectacular view. And if you're standing at the wall, looking out over the view, there's a little trail that goes off to your right. That's the old Appalachian Trail. It's unmarked. You just have to know that that's the old Appalachian Trail. And, and so, and you hike up about a quarter of a mile and there's that old stone shelter with a fireplace and all that. And I will tell you that this shelter absolutely would not be allowed today. And the reason is, I don't know if you can tell in that picture, but it faces the, the like the cliff face there on the edge of the escarpment. And if you walk out the front door of the shelter, the first step, beautiful. Second step, beautiful. Third step, 800 feet straight down. <laughs> 
And so you can just imagine a hiker waking up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, I drank too much water last night before I went to bed and getting up, you know, in the middle of the night to do what he needed to do and going out the front door and his friends hearing, ah. So uh, the park service, because it's a national park, the national park service would never <laughs> allow this today. But it is one of the few real physical remnants of the old trail. The other places that people stayed when they were hiking was they stayed in homes. Um, long before Airbnb, people took in boarders. And this is the Sidna Allen House, the single largest home in uh, Carroll County, Virginia, just outside of Fancy Gap. And a woman uh, named Erna Webb used to take in hikers. She would charge them a dollar and they would they could stay in her house. And her phone number was listed in the trail guide, one of those old five-digit phone numbers. And um, you could stay in her house. She would give you dinner and breakfast and a hot shower for a dollar. And, and dinner was served family style and around the dining room table. She was a widow and, and had outlived both her husband and her children. And, um, and she lived in this giant old house. And there's absolutely no chance that she didn't tell those hikers the story of this house because it was built by a man named Sidna Allen, whose older brother was convicted of beating up a sheriff's deputy in Hillsville 30 years earlier. And when the judge said, okay, I'm sentencing you to a year in jail, Sidna's brother, uh, Floyd Allen, stood up and said, judge, I ain't a going. And then he pulled a gun out of his pocket because they hadn't disarmed anybody. And he started shooting, as did all of his brothers in the, in the audience. And, and before it was over, the entire county government of Carroll County was dead. <laughs> the judge was dead. The justice of the peace was dead. The mayor was dead. The foreperson of the jury was dead. I mean, lots of people died in this courthouse shooting. And, um, and, so, and so Alan was eventually arrested by the Pinkertons in Iowa because the Pinkertons never gave up. And they caught him somewhere in Iowa, extradited him back to Virginia. His lawyer ended up with the house as payment. And then the lawyer sold it to the Webb family. And Erna was then, many years later, taking in borders. You know she had to tell hikers the story. <laughs> like, how could she not? And... And, you know, it's just this crazy story. And, and I will tell you, you know, the book talks a lot about the persistence of memory in this part of the state. I learned about this house from a man named Carl, who owns an antique shop in Fancy Gap. And Carl said, I was asked, and the trail used to go right past the front door of his shop. And I asked him if he knew that. Oh, no, I didn't know that. That's so cool. And, and he said, but you know about the courthouse shooting, right? And I said, no, I don't. Tell me about it. And so he tells me this whole story of the big courthouse shooting goes on for 15 minutes about it. And I said, that's amazing, Carl. And he was telling it to me like it had happened in 1984. And I said, and I said, Carl, when did that happen? Oh, it was 1906. And so, and, you know, to him, it was very present in, in his life still. Or, you know, if you're a hiker, you might stay, you know, in a hotel, the Bluemont Hotel in Galax, which is the only town of any real size in, in that part of the state. It was a furniture manufacturing town. There's still one furniture factory in Galax these days. Uh, and uh, Earl Schaefer, the first man to hike the Appalachian Trail from end to end in 1948, this is where he stayed when he was hiking north, uh, was at the Bluemont. Or you might stay at a fire tower. They, they rooted the trail along past all these fire towers because the tower keepers could give you directions. They liked having visitors mostly. Um, and if the weather is really bad, you could sleep in the fire tower with one of the tower keepers. Um, so, you know, there are some interesting options and the, and the views were spectacular. This is actually from Skulls Gap um, on the west side of the New River, looking out toward the Grayson Highlands down on the North Carolina-Tennessee border. Um, and it's just, and this photograph was taken by Gene Espy, that man I interviewed in 2019. And eventually you got to Damascus, right on the Tennessee line, which is where the old trail and the new trail intersect as they come together, those two routes come together in Damascus. And so in 1950, from 1930 to 1952, that was the route of the trail. And in 1952, the Appalachian Trail Conference moved the trail 50 miles to the west and they did it for two reasons. The first was that I mentioned it was a volunteer organization and they, they almost, they, there were no towns of any size other than Galax in that part of the state. And so it was really hard to recruit volunteers who would go out every month and take care of the trail. There just wasn't a population base. And so that was a struggle. And so 
members of the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club based in Washington or the Roanoke Club uh, or the Tennessee Club, the uh, Tennessee uh, Smoky Mountains Hiking Club would come up from Knoxville to help take care of it. And this just, it wasn't practical. So that was one problem. And then the opportunity that arose was that the Jefferson National Forest expanded dramatically in the pre-war period. And, and so all of a sudden there was all this federal land that they could move the trail to. So ultimately that's what they did. They moved it into the Jefferson National Forest so it would have protection and, um, and, you know, and the Forest Service might help out a little bit with the, the trail maintenance. So that's the story of the, the sort of overview story of the trail itself. But that's only half the story. Because the other half of the story is the people who live in Southwest Virginia along the route of the old trail. And in, um, in 2019, I gave a talk at the Floyd County Public Library and in Floyd and um, just about the research I was doing. I just hope to meet some people. And, and so one of the people I met was this guy, Doug Bell. Um, and Doug is just such a wonderful, wonderful person, lifetime employee of Lowe's, the lumberyard. He was a regional manager when he retired. And he grew up in Floyd County on a farm that the trail traversed. Now, Doug is not old enough to remember the hikers because he was, he was born in 1956. And so the trail had already moved away, but he was raised by his grandfather. And his grandfather remembered the, the hikers really well and, um, and used to tell Doug all these stories about hikers and coming to the farm and all these interesting people he met. And Doug is actually in this photograph that I took in 2021. He's standing in front of the ruins of his grandfather's house, which burned in the 1970s. But here's a photo of the Bell family farm. So the, the white structure over there, that's where Doug was standing. That's the family farmhouse. And the trail itself kind of came in this photograph, it came this way. Sort of over, over on that, the sort of far corner. But his grandfather wanted the hikers to come by the front door, so he just moved the trail markers. And, <laughs> and he just shifted the trail markers and they went between, and so the trail went between his chicken coop and his woodshed and, and came right past his front door. And, and he had a little sign on the front door that said, please knock. And, and so, I mean, he was, he lived a half a mile from the road. So it wasn't like, you know, people were strolling by only hikers and they would knock and he would invite them in and he would maybe fix them something to eat and he'd maybe sell them some eggs or, you know, if it was zucchini season or whatever, and, or some milk to drink and, and talk to them about where they were from. And, and so, you know, were they like Gene Espy, this older guy I interviewed, Gene is from Southern Georgia. And, and so maybe they had a chat about the differences between Southern Georgia or Earl Schaefer, the first through hiker. He was a veteran of the Pacific War. So maybe they talked about that. And so hikers brought the world to these rural areas and the rural people who lived there shared their world. So there was this really wonderful exchange. Um, so my favorite person who I got to know doing the research is Ralph Barnard. This is Ralph and his really wonderful wife, Hope. And um, when I started working on this and I was driving around in that part of the state, people would say to me, well, you know, you need to talk to Ralph Barnard, but well, Ralph's a little crusty. It's a little difficult. And, and I don't know who they were talking about because I've been to Ralph's house, I don't know, four times now. And Ralph is anything but crusty or difficult, or maybe he's just nice to me because I'm not a neighbor. I don't know. But <laughs> But Ralph, is his. he also was raised by his grandfather, John Barnard, who made that trail up to the top of the Pinnacles of Dan. And, and Ralph's old enough, he remembers the hikers really well. And um, mostly, he said when he was a teenager, he would, they would stay in the family barn. And he would have to go out and tell them, no smoking in the barn. <laughs> Can't catch the barn on fire. Uh, but he also led them up and over the Pinnacles on a regular basis as a teenager. And, you know, he and Hope have just brought me into their home and into their family. I've met their grandkids. Uh, Ralph's driven me all over the Kibler Valley, although I kind of wish I'd been driving. But <laughs> because... Ralph's driving style on those mountain roads is not mine. Um, but here's the, here's the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club at the Barnard family home. See if you can pick out Myron Avery in the photo. A wheel? <laughs> so there he is with his wheel. And, uh, but this, this is a group of um, hikers who came down from Washington, D.C. to spend four days at the Barnard farm and do trail maintenance because there wasn't a, a, you know, a local trail club. Somebody else who visited the Barnards was a writer and a photographer for National Geographic magazine. 
1949, they stayed with the Barnards on their farm uh, while they were writing a story about this new trail. And uh, this article was published in 1949 in National Geographic. And, uh, and there's this wonderful description of the Barnard farm and, and, um, and, and how, you know, how nice it was and how sweet uh, Mr. Barnard was. And, and, uh, and so a few years later, a woman in Ohio, she was age, in her mid sixties. She, like everybody in those days, had the stack of National Geographic's because you know it was a federal crime to throw away your National Geographic's. And and so um, she was reading back through. She was a farm wife in 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 rural Ohio, and she was reading through these old National Geographic magazines. And she read this story about this skyline trail from Georgia to Maine, and she thought, "Well, I like to hike. I think I'll go hike that trail." And so she told her oldest daughter. She'd outlived her husband at this point. She told her oldest daughter. I'm going to take a hike. I'll be back. <laughs> I read an interview with her oldest daughter many years later, and they said, well, weren't you surprised she was gone so long? And her daughter said, no, you don't know my mom. That's just the way she is. But so we were used to it. But so this woman named Emma Gatewood, who everybody knows as Grandma Gatewood, um, she, well, the first time she tried, she went to Maine and tried to hike to Georgia and she got lost in Maine and like really badly lost. And the Rangers weren't impressed by her. And so they put her on a bus and sent her back to Ohio, but, and told her not to come back. And Emma Gatewood was not a woman you said don't to. And um, so the next year she went to, at age 67, she went to Georgia and hiked from Georgia to Maine, becoming famous because she was you know, quirky. And she was 67 and she didn't have a backpack. She had a, a sack that she'd made out of an old denim skirt. And she hiked in Converse high tops and lived on Vienna sausages and whatever food people would, she just go up to people's door and say, knock on their door and say, hi, I'm hiking this trail and I'm hungry. Can you feed me? And they would see this granny at their front door and they say, well, come on in, ma'am. You know? And so, so Sports Illustrated wrote about her. She was on the Today Show um, and she ended up hiking the Appalachian Trail three times. But it was this last time in her late 70s. And um, and so they would, but it was a story in National Geographic that inspired her. If you know that part of the state, you know that the main geological feature other than the mountains is the New River. And this is uh, Dixon's Ferry Bridge, named for Dixon's Ferry. And um, it's just north of the town of Freeze, spelled like fries, like French fries, but pronounced freeze. So don't make that mistake when you visit. I did. And it's like, no, it's, it's freeze, Dr. Kelly. And uh, so this is Dixon's Ferry Bridge. So of course there was Dixon's Ferry. I'll show you. There's Dixon's Ferry. The man in the background is Charlie Dixon. I forget his father's name in the foreground, but um, I, as part of my research, I sat for several times for interviews with Sally Dixon Rakes, who is the youngest daughter of Charlie Dixon. And when I interviewed Sally the first time, she was 77. This was probably 2019. And, um, and she gave me this photograph. And um, this is how hikers got across the New River in the old trail. If they were hiking south, they went to the Dixon family home, which is on the east shore, and, and they knocked on the door. And Mr. and Mrs. Dixon would put them across in this, this little boat named Redbird, um, would put them across for a nickel. If they were hiking north, they had to stand on the far shore of the river and yell. And if you've been down there, you know, the New River is a very wide river. It's like, I don't know, 75 yards, 100 yards wide there. And, um, and so I said to Sally at one point, did your parents ever consider putting a bell on the other shore that, you know, hikers could ring? And she thought about that for a minute. And she said, you know, that would have been a really good idea. <laughs> so... And, and I asked Gene Espy, how long were you on the, because he hiked north, how long were you on the far shore, you know, trying to get their attention? And he said, it was a long time. I don't know. <laughs> he said, I had to yell really loud. And I said, but do you remember going to the Dixon's house? And he said, oh, absolutely. I remember them so much. They were so sweet. Mrs. Dixon went and got him and put him across. And, um, and so, um, and then gave him some lemonade or iced tea or something on the front porch. And he said, he said, but there was this little girl right behind the screen door. And she wouldn't come out. And he said, I love children. I was trying to coax her out so I could talk to her. And she just wouldn't come out. Well, that was Sally. And, and I said to Sally, do you remember Gene Espy? And she said, oh, of course, that man from Georgia, he was so nice. When he got to Maine, he sent us a postcard letting us know that he had finished his hike. And I said, well, he says you wouldn't come out from behind the door. Why was that? And she said, well, he had a beard. 
And, and I, I said, and that's a problem, why? And she said, well, you know, it was the 1950s and my father had always told me that, yeah, I should stay away from men with beards because they were either hobos or communists. <laughs> if you go to the Appalachian Trail today, I would say three-fourths of the men who you see on the trail have beards, and I don't think they're all hobos or communists. Uh, so, so that's the story of, uh, and, and, but let me just say that all these folks I talked about, you know, Doug Bell or, or Ralph Barnard or Sally Dixon, they're just three of the, of the sort of highlight people I talked to. I talked to Shirley Cole's daughter, who was 94 years old when I interviewed her. Living, she's as far as I know, she's still around, so she'd be like 97 now. Um, and you know, Gene Espy is 95, and um, and so I talked to a lot of really old folks. And um, but the people in southwest Virginia, the trail is alive for them, it is alive for them, it is part of their story. And so, I just want to read you the, the very last little bit from the book just to give you a sense for that. Because um, if you spent much time in places like Floyd County or Carroll County or, or um, Fancy Gap or, you know, Bent Mountain or wherever, uh, you know that, that, that the stories are what are really important. So the Appalachian Trail left its original route in southwestern Virginia at the end of the 1952 hiking season and quickly passed out of the knowledge of the vast majority of the Appalachian Trail community. Because it was written out of the trail guides, Hikers passing north and south in ever-growing numbers had no way to learn that they were missing out on the pinnacles of Dan, the climb up Farmer Mountain with its 360-degree views, or the opportunity to see the second-highest waterfall in Virginia up on Bent Mountain. But the trail left many traces on the landscape of this region, some of which are still easily read today. The Galax chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution is the Appalachian Trail chapter, although the current leadership of that chapter isn't really sure why. I asked, and they said, well, you know, we don't know. Um, uh, several roads still bear the name Appalachian Trail, and if you know where to look, you can find rusty old Appalachian Trail markers on trees, likely put there by Shirley Cole and Myron Avery back in 1931. These are the tangible things. The intangible things are just as important. All of us have a place. A place where we feel the most connected, the most comfortable, the place where we know the way things smell, how the wind blows, how people talk, and what everyone is eating. Even in the seemingly rootless world where jet planes shuttle millions through the air every day, where people move with increasing frequency in search of jobs, of water, of security, to get away from war, fire, or famine, most humans are still rooted in their places, the places that they've named, the places they know best. In the South, that place isn't just a place, it's a home place. And home places are endowed with even greater significance than ordinary locations. Every home place, wherever it is, has its own stories. And these are some of the these are from some of the stories people told me. Over there, that's where lightning hit that big tree. Right here, that's where we first met. Up there on the mountain, that's where those folks were lost for three days. You can see it down there. This is my favorite. You can see it down there where the river bends. That's where our neighbor's son found that dead bear. <laughs> they had pictures. <laughs> uh, places become a code, a shorthand for stories that define who we are, who we've been, and who we will be. Physical geography, buildings, soundscapes, smells, they provide the boundaries, the parameters for memory, for understanding, for teaching, and most of all, for belonging. But just as important as those physical things, if not more so, are the stories. The stories the Dixon family members tell about pulling hikers across the river in Redbird, Ralph Barnard's tales of hikers and their fear of panthers in the Dan River Gorge, the hope that Richard Farmer still holds out for freeze, he's the mayor, Dorothy Shiflett's stories of building trail with her father, and the pride in Doug Bell's voice when he speaks of how the Appalachian Trail came to his grandfather's front door. In a part of America where the past really matters, the Appalachian Trail lives on, inscribed on the inner landscapes of the people who still remember and are determined not to forget. In this Appalachian heartland where people's lives are organized around stories of the past and how that past is inextricably woven into their present and their future, 
Memories of the Appalachian Trail and their place in its history remain an important way that they make sense of their world. They wish other people remembered it the way that they do, but in the end, all that really matters is that they remember the old trail. Thank you. Thank you. And, I, and I'll just mention, um, I'm also the host of a podcast on the history of the Appalachian Trail, the Green Tunnel podcast. And um, it's on all the podcast platforms. Um, or you can just go to our website uh, at Mason, r2studios.org to, to subscribe to the show. So um, now it's time for questions that you might want to ask. Yes, ma'am, over here. Just, was there somebody with a microphone or? Oh, there they are. Great. Thanks. Are there still, um, is the next generation of these people that you met doing the same thing, staying in the same place, sharing more stories? Or yes, yes and no. Um, so so Freeze is a really good example. Um, Freeze was, a, was an industrial town on the New River. There was a mill there, a linen mill there, uh, the Washington Mill. Um, until the 1980s and late 80s, and, or maybe the early 80s. And um, those of you who went to Virginia Tech know that the School of Business is the Pamplin School of Business. And um, Mr. Pamplin was an investor from Chicago, I think, somewhere in the Great Lakes region. And he bought that mill and, um, and then closed it to take a tax write-off. And um, so Pamplin is not a really popular name in Freeze, Virginia. Um, and, um, and so that put almost the entire town out of work. And 800 people in a town of like 1,300 people lost their jobs. And so lots of people left. Or the ones who've stayed, now they work in Galax, which is 45 minutes away. Or they work in Dublin, which is an hour away. Or they work in Mount Airy, which is two hours away. And, um, and some of those folks, younger generations, stay also because it's their place. Um, other people have fled because it's really hard to find work. And, um, and so it just kind of depends. But the stories remain. I went to the, the Dixon family invited me to their family reunion a couple of years ago down on the river. They still have, you know, that land that was theirs and still they have like a little one acre plot there came into their family as a result of a Revolutionary War land grant. That's how long the Dixons have been on the New River. And um, so they had the family reunion there and that little postage stamp that they still have. And, um, and there were, you know, four generations of people there and some who lived there, some who didn't. And, and I'll just say one of the great moments in doing all this research was um, Sally Dixon's, Sally Dixon Rakes's um, older brother was there at Griggs. And, and he came up to me and he said, I hear you're writing a book about my family. And I said, well, your family's part of the story. Yeah, that's right. And he said, and I hear you're a college professor. And I said, that's right. And he said, you must be a liberal. <laughs> and, and I said, that's right, I am. And, and, and he said, you know, I don't get to talk to a lot of liberals. Can we sit down and chat? And I said, you bet. And, and so we sat down, because I almost said, I don't get to talk to a lot of conservatives. But so we sat down, and, and Griggs and I talked for a good, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes. And you know what we never mentioned? Politics. Not once. He told me about, he showed me a picture of this giant catfish he'd caught and told me all about his grandkids and all that. So it was all about the place, not about all the stuff people like to fight about. So. Next question. In the back there. Thank you for a very engaging and informative talk. I'm curious if um, any parts of the Lost Trail have been repurposed as hiking trails in that region. If so, do you have a sense of what percentage of the trail? And if not, um, does most of that Lost Trail remain privately held on privately held lands? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So west of the New River, you can hike the old Appalachian Trail. It's called the Iron Mountain Trail. And it, Iron Mountain is a ridge that runs from the New River all the way down to the Tennessee border, north of the Grayson Highlands. And, and, uh, and so the Iron Mountain Trail is the old Appalachian Trail. It's not, you, you just have to know that. It doesn't say that anywhere. There are no signs that say former route of the Appalachian Trail. It's just the Iron Mountain Trail. And so that's about, 135 miles of trail 
and um, and it's really really beautiful. Um, it's a multi-use trail, so uh, you know the Appalachian Trail is hikers only, no mountain bikers, no pack stock, no you know no motorbikes, nothing like that. Um, and uh, but the Iron Mountain Trail is horses and mountain bikes and hikers and lots of stuff, but but it's not very heavily used, and so. Uh, it's really, really beautiful. And there are shelters along the Iron Mountain Trail. And it eventually comes, you know, comes down to Damascus, um, which if you haven't been to Damascus, you really need to go. Because um, it's Trail Town USA. There's the Appalachian Trail or the Appalachian Trail. There's there's um, the Iron Mountain Trail, the Virginia Creeper Trail. You can get a bike uh, company. will take you up to the top of White Top Mountain and you can just coast all the way down to Damascus over like 10 miles. So Damascus is really wonderful. Um, on the east side of the New River, you can hike over the Pinnacles of Dan. You have to get a permit from the power company that owns all that land now. There are a couple of uh, hydroelectric dams in the gorge, uh, but they'll give you a permit. And the thing that they stipulate is you have to hike with someone because somebody had a pretty bad fall on the Pinnacles a few years ago. And um, the search and rescue turned out to be a little complicated. It turned out okay, but the power company now says no, no solo hikers, um, but you can, you can get a permit to do that. Um, and then if you go to the Floyd County Public Library, where they have all the old trail guides, you can copy for whatever section you want and follow the directions because most of it was on old roadbeds. And, um, and so you can kind of, you go to the County Line Baptist Church and turn left, you know? So that's, that's one way you can do that. Um, and there's a little bit of trail going up and over Poor Mountain from Roanoke to into Floyd County. But then there's also been one other repurposing. Um, a group of bicycle enthusiasts in Floyd County have created the Tour de Floyd. And there's a winery at the north end of Floyd County and a winery at the southern end of Floyd County. And you start at, I forget which is which, but uh, uh, but you start at the, at the one in the north and, and they have some like, you know, bagels and coffee or whatever. And then you ride along the old route of the Appalachian Trail and all those old roadbeds until you get to the winery in the south. And then, well, you know, you've worked hard all day. So, of course, you should have a glass of wine. And, and so they do that once a year. Hi. Uh, yeah, thanks. This is a great presentation, and it was really of interest to us when we saw there was one on the Appalachian Trail in general, which is of interest because we have a daughter who uh, traversed the whole trail uh, south to north, and it's quite an experience. My wife could tell you a lot about that because we kept track of her uh, using GPS and that sort of thing. But I'm asking a question here that I'd like to know about the safety of the trail in general. She hiked by herself and at night she would sleep with other hikers. But, you know, we've read stuff along the trail about maniac people shooting folks and stuff like that. Is it generally safe? The, the Appalachian Trail is actually one of the safest places you can be in the United States. So the, the trail centennial is in 2025. So we're right up against the So what is that? 98 years ago, the trail was founded. And um, in that 98 years, 11 people have been murdered on the Appalachian Trail. 11. That's one a decade. Um, the, it is a safe place. Now, you could fall and break an ankle. Um, you could step on a copperhead, as somebody did at the shelter I maintained last year. You know, not advised. Don't step on the copperheads. Um, and um, you know, and if you're a woman hiking by yourself, just as being a woman anywhere by yourself in the United States, there are men who will hassle you a little bit from time to time. But I know lots of women who have hiked the trail from one end to the other, and all of them have told me that maybe once during their hike. There was a moment when they wanted to hike with other people because there was this guy who seemed a little weird, but it's a safe place. It's a truly safe place. And um, it's, it, but like I, I tell student, my students, I teach courses on the history of the AT and my students ask this question all the time. And I, I will ask them, well, getting to campus, did you drive on Interstate 66? Because if you did, you're in a much more dangerous place, you know. I mean, people die on Interstate 66 like every other week or something like that. So, no, it's a, it's a safe place. There's a question down here. Yeah, thanks for a terrific presentation. Um, not many people invite strangers to come to their doors anymore, like the guy who rerouted the trail to, by his front door. Uh, but I remember in um, 
where Loudoun and Clark County come together, there's a little restaurant where hikers know about and they, they go there regularly. How many homes or restaurants or other stopping off places are there along the present day trail that, that you're aware of and that hikers know about and go by? Yeah, it's a really wonderful question because, um, so the Appalachian Trail is a national park. It is a recreational resource and it is an economic development engine for rural communities all along the trail. This was not in any way part of Benton Mackay's goal. He wasn't really thinking along those terms. Um, but beginning in the 1970s, as the number of hikers really grew, um, people started seeing economic opportunity from that and um, helping hikers you know, supply themselves or stop and have a cheeseburger or uh, you know, a pizza after their hike or whatever it might be. And, um, and so um, it's become really important to these rural communities uh, with lots and lots of customers. And so uh, you know, uh, our family has a, a cabin in Linden, Virginia, just outside of Front Royal and the trail comes really close by. And um, at the bottom of the mountain is the Montre store. And it's about a mile from the trailhead. And you know that the Montre store caters to hikers because when you go in, you can buy a box of Pop-Tarts or you can just buy individual sleeves of Pop-Tarts, you know, just like two Pop-Tarts. And, um, and they have peanut butter and ramen soup and all the things that hikers want. And, uh, and so it's important for their business. And, um, and you said, you know, not many people invite people into their homes anymore. That's not really true along the Appalachian Trail. Um, there are trail hostels. There are... Um, you know, people who take in hikers all the time. And um, and it's really still pretty common, more common now than it was even 25 years ago. Uh, but the U.S. how many? And I'll just say there's a, the Park Service thinks there's about 3,200 access points along the trail. So 2,000, you know, possible stores and restaurants and things like that. So, uh, but the trail, if the, so if the trail were to move away, then those, you know, the Montre store would lose all that business and all those other little stores would lose all that business. And this is when I talked to Richard Farmer, the mayor of Freeze, he told me the whole story of the, you know, the mill closing and what an impact it had. Um, just to give you an idea of what it was like growing up in Freeze, he'd grown up there and, um, you know, it was a mill town. And, and so he said, we didn't pay for anything. We just signed for everything. And because the mill owned every business except the post office and um, they even owned the bank. And, and so he, when he was drafted into the army to go serve in Vietnam, he went to basic training and he didn't know how to make change. He never had to. <laughs> he just signed his parents' name for things. And then he said, the guys in his barracks said, what planet are you from? <laughs> you know, you know how, do, how do you not know how to make change? But Richard um, was really clear that, you know, if the Appalachian Trail still came at Dixon's, across the river at Dixon's Ferry, that's just two miles from town. He said, think of the businesses we would have. Think of it. And he said, we just missed out on that. So time for one more question. Who would like to, to ask that last question? Don't be shy. There we go. How many people do this every year and how long does it take? So first of all, like I said, about 4 million people get onto the trail every year. Um, and I would say their average amount of time on trail is probably about an hour and a half. And that was and that was Mackay's vision is that it would be a place that people would go spend some time under the trees, get some fresh air, maybe see a deer or a bobcat or a raccoon or, you know, something like that. Um, and just have their lives enriched by that experience. And that is what happens. Your question was really about the people who want to hike the whole trail. And um, and so uh, the uh, this year, probably around 4,000 people are going to attempt a hike. They call it a through hike. About 4,000 people will attempt it. And somewhere in the vicinity of eight or 900 will actually make it. Um, and and they, the ones who drop out, um, they mostly drop out because they get bored. Because it's the same thing every single day. You get up in the morning, you hike 15, you know, originally like eight miles and then 10 miles and then 12 miles and then 15 miles as you get stronger. And you come to a view. Oh, look, a beautiful view down into the valley. Look at that cute little town down there. And you hike along for five more miles. Another view. Oh, look, a view down into the valley. Look at that cute little town. And it's just the same thing every day. And, and especially from Southern Virginia, um, when, after you cross the James River, you go over the, um, 
the three ridges, that's the last point that last time you cross 4,000 feet of elevation until you get to Vermont. And, and so it's just a lot of walking along the tops of ridges and hikers just at some point they think, this is dumb. <laughs> Why am I doing this? And, and it's just boring. And, and so they, they run out of, run out of motivation um, or they get injured or they have to go back to work or, you know, various kinds of things. But so maybe eight or 900 people will complete a through hike this year. So not, not that many really. And the through hikers get all the press because it's, you know, it's a big accomplishment and it's what people know because it's a big deal, a through hike, like the folks in the back, their daughter did it. That's, it's really amazing, but they're statistical noise in the story of the Appalachian Trail because, you know, 800 people compared to 4 million, they're just sort of statistical noise. So really the story of the Appalachian Trail is the people who go out for an hour or two. That's the real story. So, well, thank you all so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it.